0: State-of-the-art patents update. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Cartmails in Conversation. I'm Daniel Wise and in today's discussion I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Johnny Woodward and Adam Elwood. This is the podcast version of our recent state-of-the-art webinar and we're taking a look at some recent developments at the EPO. In particular, Johnny will be ta- talking to us about the Enlarged Board of Appeals decision on video conference oral proceedings, and in particular the extent to which parties can be forced to have their oral proceedings in this format. And then Adam will be taking us through the recent referral to the Enlarged Board of Appeal on plausibility as potentially a really important development in the law of inventive step. Okay, so let's kick off with the video conference oral proceedings. Um, but before that, I just wanted to ask, Johnny, what actually is a referral to the enlarged board? What, what is this board? So, um, this is, uh, I think, the best analogy
1: that you can come up with is probably something a bit like the UK Supreme Court, where questions of law get referred um, up by other deciding bodies where there's ambiguity as to how uh, a legal question should be answered or where there's divergent decisions starting to appear. Um, so, in this case, uh, an EPO board of appeal, a second instance, um, effectively court at the EPO, has referred a question up to the enlarged board, which um, they have taken a decision on, um, and then that question is ultimately applied to the board of appeal case and other other cases um, that come up subsequently going forward.
0: And and who makes up this board?
1: It's a mixture of people from um, mostly from across the boards of appeal, uh, the EPO president of the boards of appeal. Um, is uh, normally acts as the 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 chairman of the enlarged board. Um, in this case, yeah, I, I think the the panel was drawn across um, across lots of different boards mm. uh, with different technical backgrounds and
0: lots of people with legal backgrounds as well. Sure. So presumably a, a, a spread of views there. And and what's the background to this particular referral? This referral um, stems from all
1: of the um, all of the chaos and carnage caused by the the COVID nineteen pandemic with. Um, the way that the EPO normally operate oral proceedings. Um, as as many of you will know, um, you get summoned to oral proceedings at the EPO, everyone flies to Munich or to The Hague, um, depending on where um, the, the panel that you're in front of is normally based. Uh, you have your hearing and you fly home and it, it, it doesn't take a genius to realise that during the pandemic that became quite difficult to do. <laughs> so um, the EPO started offering people um, uh, inter partes proceedings by video conference which was a thing they'd never done before um as uh, as the pandemic drew on and it became clear that this wasn't going to be a thing that only lasted three months as we all thought it was going to initially they started to get a bit more forceful about wanting people to come by video conference because they um, had massive backlogs in um building up in terms of cases to be resolved and ultimately at the start of 2021 they started telling people that they had to come uh to oral proceedings by video conference um and this kind of this kicked off um a bit of a a a bit of a fuss with some people because i mean well All of us here have have grappled with video conferencing at various points over the last 18 months and and had some problems along the way. I mean, when researching this talk, I recalled fondly the um, incident in the US where a lawyer got stuck with a cat filter um, and the judge had to say that he uh, recognised that the lawyer was not in fact a cat and that the proceedings could continue. But um, I mean, it's not just that. It's obviously kind of all of the uh, sort the of fiddle with, um, oh, you've left yourself on mute and, oh, my my connection's broken up. And all of this is not particularly conducive to um, high quality, effectively court proceedings. <laughs> so, um, yeah, some people got quite irritated about it. Um, and ultimately, at the start of this year, during a, a hearing by video conference, funnily enough, um, one of the parties to a, yeah, a Board of Appeal um, case um, asked the that the EPA board in question, who was managing their case, to refer a question to the enlarged board about whether or not it was legal uh, under the EPC um, to refer to force parties to come to oral proceedings by video conference. Um, so that's how we got to that's how we got to where we um, well the the, the the how we got to this particular question being referred to the enlarged board.
0: So so what exactly were they being asked to consider? So, the whole concept of video conference or proceedings or, or yeah i think initially it was
1: uh the question was a little bit um so yeah the, the way that the, the way that the system works is a specific question gets referred to the enlarged board they then decide on that question they also have the option to slightly reformulate the question if they don't think the question is the right question or if you're being cynical if they don't want to answer that particular question <laughs> so um the question that was initially referred was, can you force a party to come to video conferencing oral proceedings without consent? And is that compatible with the right to oral proceedings in the EPC, which is in Article 116, which says that oral proceedings shall be held at the request of a party um, to the proceedings? Um, and the enlarged Board, so that's what the enlarged Board were asked. They didn't want to answer that question. They slightly reformulated it in a number of ways. Um, I think... One thing they did was reformulate it to refer only to boards of appeal rather than other first in other than first instance departments of the EPA who might be holding oral proceedings. So that might be opposition divisions and examining divisions. The enlarged board didn't feel that the question needed to be answered for them, and I don't really understand their reasoning for that. But I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that a bit more later. Um, the um, other aspect that they changed in the question was they. Um, decided that the question needed to be limited to situations where there is a, what they called a general emergency preventing parties attending in-person oral proceedings okay. at the EPO. So that means a pandemic. Yep. I guess it could mean a, a state of war. I mean, yeah, I mean, get creative with your disasters. But um, <laughs> it's it's something along those lines. And I think, to be fair, this, this did make sense. They said, normally, if in-person oral proceedings are a possibility and a party objects to being forced to attend oral proceedings by video conference, you can just resolve the issue by getting everyone to come in person. And that's only not an option when you legally can't enter Germany, for example, because you're stuck in quarantine or you can't travel because you have a lock- national lockdown or or whatever. So that aspect of the, of the kind of sort of narrowing of the question made sense. And the final thing that they touched on was that they felt that um, it was important to consider what we refer to as the right to be heard, as well as the right to oral proceedings. And they felt that video conferencing—well, they, they felt they needed to consider whether video conferencing could be sufficiently problematic that it might actually affect your uh, your right to be heard by the mm. EPO, as well as just the, fact, the fundamental right to have oral proceedings in the first place.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's go for Icelandic volcanoes. That's yeah, that more. that would that would be perfect. <laughs> that that as well. caused quite a lot of problems a few years ago. Uh, what? Uh, okay, so so where, where did the board fall out on this? So um, they issued a a verbal order, or, or what, no,
1: it was written, but kind of very brief written order um, back in July that said in a general emergency, like a pandemic, it's okay to force people to come to oral proceedings by video conference, and that's compatible with with the EPC. And then we didn't get anything further until a written decision um, relatively recently. And I think um, people were a bit, Uh, left on a bit of a cliffhanger over this because, as I said, it, it kind of makes sense that people might be forced to come during a pandemic. But I think what people really wanted to see here was how the board's reasoning and how their answer to the question might affect the situation after the pandemic is done, um, a lot of the mood music from the EPO since since the pandemic has been that they really quite like video conferencing or mm. proceedings. It makes their life a lot easier. They don't need to have hearing rooms. They don't need to constantly um, have people flying in and um, whatnot. It all seems quite simple, very simple to them and very straightforward for them. I think people wanted to know whether that was going to become the new norm. Um, so we didn't really get any of that until the written decision came out um which yeah restates that answer and breaks down uh the board's reasoning a little bit more um yeah in in a little bit more detail
0: and so so where are we going next with this what what, you know the pandemic hopefully is coming (laughs) to a uh and <laughs> yeah. at some point in Have the You've got a crystal future? ball that I don't. <laughs> Omicron permitting. Um, yeah, where, where do you think we're going to be left? Are we all going to be having video conference oral proceedings? So, yeah, so the board's answer basically said um, video conferencing oral proceedings are
1: actually oral proceedings. They felt that the term oral proceedings could encompass that. There was some argument about whether or not the fact that the EPC was drafted in 1973 when video conferencing didn't exist, meant that they couldn't possibly have meant it to cover that. But they decided mm. that, that, yeah, it falls within the meaning, the normal meaning of the term all proceedings. They
0: still proceedings. had Star Trek back then. They were exactly. Video they could have Star foreseen
1: Trek. that coming. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they are oral proceedings. They said, the, the board said they're suboptimal. Um, and person oral proceedings are, that's, to quote one of their favourite phrases, the gold standard. But I think we all knew that anyway. Um, they're just kind of restating what we, what everyone everyone deep down probably acknowledged Um, there's debate about whether it's good enough to be as it were kind of quasi-judicial court proceedings but Hey, um, they've decided that it is. Um, I think so. Yeah, what happens next? So interestingly, they said they 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 said basically yeah if if you're going to refuse in oral proceedings, then you need to have good good reasons why you're doing it. And they actually listed out some of those r- reasons and obviously good reasons were taken to include quarantining, um, travel restrictions, what we would expect. And then they didn't need to say this, but they said bad reasons include room availability at the epo and the need to hit efficiency targets and i think i was quite um i probably wasn't the only person to be quite surprised at the enlarged board kind of needlessly um potentially placing restrictions on what the epo can do in the future that's not normally how they tend to operate they normally kind of limit their answer to what they need to say and don't create further problems potentially for themselves further down the line um but yeah, they've they basically said if a party wants in person or proceedings, you kind of have to give it to them. So after the pandemic, they haven't formally ruled on what happens after the pandemic because that answer mm. was technically restricted to um, yeah a general emergency as they called it. But what I think will probably happen now is that the EPO appears, the EPO, the president of the EPO First instance Department seem keen to keep using video conferencing because it does make their life easier. It will allow them to continue to clear the backlog as the pandemic winds down. And then we'll probably be in a bit of a, a grey patch towards the end of the pandemic where the pandemic's, well, hopefully, hopefully sort of kind of over, but maybe still flaring up occasionally. And there won't be completely clear whether this answer applies or not. And um, I suspect that someone who doesn't want to go to video conferencing oral proceedings will make a fuss about it in front of an opposition division or an examining division. Um, And, yeah, technically, again, the the enlarged board's answer, because it's restricted to boards of appeal, doesn't apply to that situation. So the opposition division can say, well, we can hold these if Mm. we want to. Um, But then the reasoning behind why oral proceedings aren't good enough seem would seem to apply to all epo departments equally just because you're in front of a board doesn't mean that video conferencing is any better or worse than if it was in front of any any other department so i suspect that someone will someone will someone make a fuss in front of an opposition division or an examining division will end up with a an appeal over this um and we may find that this decision is ultimately enforced more broadly but i think as well kind of being pragmatic about this um I think most people who've had to grapple with video conferencing oral proceedings would recognise that they do kind of work. And if you've got a case that's relatively simple, um, maybe it's only one opponent, um, or you've got a client who's cost-conscious and doesn't want to have to pay for you to fly to Munich or The Hague and pay for a hotel room the night before, um, the the format does kind of work in those situations. And I think lots of people, now that they've been forced to try it, might be happy carrying on with it going forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a really important, point johnny and and this referral was kind of predicated on the idea that video conference oral proceedings are less good you know they're, they're not the gold yeah. standard but i must admit my personal experience is that I, I probably prefer them i mean you know there are the advantages around costs and and you know the length of time it takes to to be away as, as you say but you know actually just doing the hearing by video conference does have advantages you can have a yeah. bigger team with you in the room in london compared to what you you might have it in in munich or the hague uh, you know, you can put yourself on mute and have a discussion in real yeah, time with useful. your team rather than, you know, in the hearing room. Obviously, you can't speak. Um, so actually, there there are there are quite a few advantages. And I mean, I yeah, I think I probably have a preference for for video conference. I still enjoy the the in person, but in terms of your ability to be prepared and, and react to things happening in the room, it's a lot easier when you're when you're not physically in that room when you when you're just doing a video conference. Absolutely, and I mean, you never know. It might even kind of
1: rebalance the power slightly of um, the way that you prosecute applications before the, the EPO to some degree. I think I've heard examiners in the past kind of informally tell me that they occasionally use oral, the threat of oral proceedings mm. before grant as kind of a pressure tactic to get you to to go down the route that they want to because they know that your client doesn't really want to have to spend money sending you to, sending you to the EPO paying for that hotel room and now if you can just rock up in a video conferencing suite a few mm. a few months later that might potentially <laughs> take this thing out of that tactic a little bit but yeah we'll we'll, we'll see I, yeah, I mean i think i think your your um your experience of them re- replicates a lot of mm.
0: this,
1: the, the the experience of a lot of people in this job um i think the steady state what we'll probably end up with is the epo the epo departments first instance haven't shown any interest in in moving away from video conferencing because of this referral in fact what they've done because of this answer to this referral, they've in fact done the opposite. The EPO recently extended the pilot programme for basically forcing everyone to have video conferencing oral proceedings until midway through next year. I think steady state, once the pandemic's done, what will probably happen is that the norm will become that the EPO tries to summon you to oral proceedings by video conference. And then ultimately, if you kick up a fuss or you say, I don't think this is appropriate, they probably won't fight that hard to let you... Have an in-person hearing if you want one, but yeah, I mean, we'll have to see what happens uh, yeah. in terms of how um, how rigorously they want to keep going down that route. Whether we start, start sliding back towards um, more in-person, um, t- time will tell.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting one, and yeah, interesting to see how the enlarged board grappled with the the question and and sort of answered it in a narrow way, but but then in some ways in quite a broad way as well. And uh, it didn't didn't have to do that. I think they were putting down a marker really to. Try yeah. and have some control over over the way the EPO manages things. And yeah, maybe, maybe for, for some of the listeners, you know, the boards of appeal are, strictly speaking, separate from the EPO. So, you know, although the EPO has to follow their rulings, they're not governed by quite the same management structure. And so when it, when they say things, there can sometimes be a bit of tension between the, the boards and the, and the rest of the EPO. But um, no, thank you, Johnny. That was uh, a very interesting chat. Let's move thank on applause. to Adam and the other referral on, on the issue of plausibility, which I think will be familiar to, to many of the listeners. Now, this is only a, a referral at the moment, Adam. Is that right? Rather than a full decision? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So we um, were waiting for. The decision to be handed down, and what and what what's this one about? What's the purpose?
2: So the purpose is to determine whether new evidence, um, which was often called post published evidence, can be used to support a technical effect under inventive step at the EPO. And if so, under what circumstances?
0: Yeah, so so what are you calling post-published evidence there? What exactly is that? Post-published
2: evidence is is, is evidence such as experimental data that was not available to the public before the filing date um, and which was filed after the filing date, for example, by an applicant or a patentee. Um, So just to be clear, we're not talking about evidence here that was actually in the application has filed. This is, yeah,
0: this is. So painful. these might be sort of further experiments that the the applicant carried out to kind of support the patent or something. Yes. But that yeah. sounds like a fairly common thing to, to see at the EPO. Why, why are they referring on this, this now? And, and why is it relevant to Inventive Step?
2: Well, Okay, so if we take a, a step back to the, the EPO's problem solution approach that they apply um, for inventive step, that involves um, identifying the closest prior art and, and, the, and the difference over the closest prior art, and then determining the technical effect um, associated with the difference. Um, and by technical effect, you could call that the advantage um, associated with the difference. Now. The EPO normally requires um, the evidence to substantiate the technical effect. And that's particularly the case in the life sciences field. Um, Now, where there is evidence in the application as filed, um, there's no issue. And, And what I mean by that is this referral doesn't relate to that situation. However, sometimes um, applicants or patentees only have post-published evidence and they need to be able to rely on that post-published evidence in order to have any chance on inventive step. And it's that situation um, that this referral seeks to deal with. So, I mean, I could give you just an example could be, um, if you can imagine having a claim to to a particular compound, Um, and the application as filed states that this compound has activity against a particular target. And in the application file, there are no data um, to support this alleged activity, but the applicant does have post-published data that does indeed show that the compound is active against the target. So can the applicant rely on this post-published data? Um, and, and that is really the question that re- the referral seeks to answer. Mm-hmm. And, and, as, and as you touched upon and I touched upon earlier, this, this type of scenario does happen quite often, um, in, especially in the life sciences field. So, yeah, it, it's, it's an important decision. It comes
0: up a lot. So, why? I mean, why are applicants getting themselves in this situation? Why don't they just generate this data and put it in their application as filed and, uh, and everyone's happy? Yeah, so clearly that's the ideal situation to be in Um, but of course it's
2: it's not that simple so for example um, if applicants delay filing their applications until they have data ready such that they can put it in the application as filed then they of course risk additional prior art or publications being available to cite against their invention but then on the flip side if they file early to avoid that type of prior art publications then often they don't have the data ready to include in the application as filed Um, and so it's this this second situation that happens quite often there's not really any data in the application as filed because applications are filed quite early to avoid Mm. prior art and and then the, the applicants and patentees are stuck in a situation where they need to rely on post-published evidence in order to
0: get through inventive step. But what you're describing there is is a situation that's as old as the hills, isn't it? Why, why have we got a referral now in, in 2021? <laughs> yeah, that is that
2: is that is true. Um, well, the simple answer is because um, there is diverging lines of case law now um, on the use of post-published evidence um, to, to support a technical effect. And, um, and yeah, the referring board in in this case noticed uh, noticed the three the, the the lines of case law, um, and so yeah, just d- decided that referral was was needed. And I think mm. it's uh, it's been it's been long coming. Um, so I, I mean, a lot of people call this referral a referral on plausibility, and indeed the EPO have have called it the plausibility referral. And um, I I realise we haven't actually mentioned anything about plausibility yet. So uh, the the reason why it is is called the plausibility referral is because according to one line of EPO case law um, in relation to the use of post-published evidence to support a technical effect, um, such post-published evidence can only be relied on if the technical effect Shown in the post-published evidence was plausible at okay. the filing date, so that's where the word plausible comes into play. Um, and but as I mentioned just now, there there are other lines of EPO case law that apply different standards as to when um, and and if post-published evidence can be used to
0: support a technical effect. Okay, so before we get onto that different case, law, when you say plausible, then you you're sort of saying. You know, you fire your application with a little bit of data to to sort of show that you've got a you know a gist of an idea there, and then you supplement it later with more data to confirm it. Is that what you mean by plausible? Yeah, that's that's gen-
2: generally um, okay. I mean, it's difficult to define exactly what pl- plausible means, but hmm. yeah, that that would that would normally work. Um, yeah, you don't have to have the full the full package of data but Mm. if you can show that you you have something and clearly you you there is basis for you claiming this technical effect or advantage that would normally be enough but of course it it
0: depends on case-by-case basis presumably sometimes that plausibility could just be established just on rational grounds you know you could give your explanation of why you think it's plausible maybe without data and as long as that explanation is right then you know, according to some of this case law, you could supplement later with the confirmation, as it were, that that your prediction was right. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that first line of case law, which I'll touch upon a bit
2: more uh, in a moment, um, it, it, it it basically says that the, te- the technical effect has to be plausible at the filing date based on the application as filed and the common general knowledge. And in the applications filed, like you said, that could be data, but it could just be scientific rationale mm-hmm. that makes it clear that that there is a there is a, a logical reason why this technical effect is achieved um and it it doesn't even need to be in the application of, as filed it could be in the in the in the common general knowledge or the prior art that you could rely on the common general knowledge for example for plausibility um of course that that would have um some implications on obviousness later down the line mm, but yeah it's, yeah it's, so it's not it's not just data it can be it can be some sort of scientific theory that you include in in an applications filed but i think the best thing
0: is is data of course because i think that's a bit more clear cut so that's probably the the first line of of case law what, what are the other lines of case law and please pepper your answer with latin if you can <laughs> well I, i'll go on to so there's three lines of case
2: law that the referring board on this uh, situation um noted um the first one that i just just discussed that the referring board called ab initio plausibility lovely um, <laughs> <laughs> and um Yeah, so as I just said, this is all about the technical effect being plausible at the filing date based on the common general knowledge and the application as filed. And if you meet that um, threshold, then you can rely on post-published data to support the technical effect. And I think of the three lines of case law that I'm going to discuss, this is the the strictest. Um, And indeed, quite a few important patents have been revoked based on this um first line of case law and one example that always comes to mind is is BMS's um Bristol-Myers mm. Squibb's desatinib NCE patent which was mm. revoked essentially because um there were no data in the application as filed to show that desatinib um had had a, an activity against against a particular target and therefore BMS couldn't rely on their post-published evidence which showed that it did indeed have activity Um, and yeah the patent was ultimately revoked. So so that's the first line of case law and the second line of case law identified by the referring board um, has been called ab initio implausibility and under this line of case law um, it's down to the opponent to show that um it is implausible that the technical effect was achieved at the filing date and if the opponent can't um can't show this if i say opponent it could be it could be the epo or th- another third party um if they can't show this then the applicant or patentee can rely on post published um evidence um i think it's I think it's quite difficult actually to show or prove that a technical effect is implausible. So Mm. I I I think this line of case law is actually quite lenient on patentees. Mm. So and and then the third the third line of case law has been called no no plausibility and under this line of case law plausibility is rejected altogether. And the reason for this is because it is allegedly incompatible with the problem solution approach under inventive step Um, so the problem solution approach at the EPO allows applicants and patentees to reformulate the problem to be solved um, i.e rely on a a new technical effect if um, say a new closest prior art document comes to light um, after filing and given that it's quite It it doesn't seem to add up that um, this new technical effect that you can rely on um, has to have been plausible at the filing date, given that, the applicant or patentee wouldn't have known about the closest prior art of the filing date. So in this line of case law, yeah, the the boards have been saying that plausibility is just incompatible with the EPO's problem solution approach. So it's not a a thing. Um, And really from the decisions that have been cited um, by the referring board, um, it seems that just merely um, mentioning the technical effect in the application as filed would be enough to, in order to rely on it later down the line. Mm. So it's, it's very lenient on patentee, this line of case law.
1: It's quite interesting hearing you saying all this, Adam, because obviously you're over in the life sciences field. Um, As an engineer, this is not really an issue that ever really crops up for us. I I mean, we basically more or less make up a technical effect that sounds plausible based on how the cogs are spinning in the the machine that you're working on or whatever. But yeah, like no plausibility would sound like it wouldn't sound very lenient to me. It would sound like what we have to deal with day in, day out. But yeah. um,
2: yeah I I agree and I think I have heard of um I have heard of plausibility of creeping into other fields now so I think initially it was biotech and pharma but now it does seem to be creeping yeah. into um say industrial chemistry and things like that so i'm not sure it's worked all, its way all the way over to to your field johnny
1: i've heard some people in who deal with computer implemented inventions particularly ones that start to cross over with with biotech so kind of things like yeah yeah machine machine learning for ge- genetic scanning and stuff like that I've, I've heard it start to creep into that which has yeah, caused sort of Engineers to have a few nightmares, but yeah, I can imagine.
0: So this is this is a big issue. We've got it referred. What what happens now at the EPO? I mean, presumably this is. Relevant to, to live cases,
2: yeah. So, well, there's there's been um, there's been a, a notice issued actually recently from the EPO, which um, basically basically say, given the importance of this referral, um, all examination and opposition proceedings before the EPO, in which the decision depends entirely on the outcome of this referral, will be stayed um and so what that means in practice or what it should mean is that the EPO should proactively stay proceedings mm. where where the the decision in those cases depends entirely on the outcome of the referral so um yeah it it, it clearly is it, it clearly is quite a big deal for them to issue that that um notice um yeah, I mean, yeah so we can expect a lot of a lot of stays yeah a backlog so um yeah they should. Hopefully we'll, we'll get a decision on this sh- soon.
0: Yeah, do you think, I mean, are they going to speed this one up? They were pretty quick with the video conference referral yeah. that Johnny was talking about. Are they, they going to do the same here, do you think? I, I think so. I mean, I'd be surprised if it wasn't handed down in
2: uh, next year, 2022. Mm. Um, we, we can't write it off, it, it being slightly later, but I imagine, given its importance, it will be sometime next year.
0: Yeah, watch this space. And so that's a really interesting one. And, of course, you know, although it's a referral and, and, and the – parties involved are the ones making submissions you know third parties can can file amicus briefs and things i expect there'll be a lot of a lot of interest in this one yeah i think we'll see a lot of interest um on this
2: so um yeah it's going to be interesting keeping an eye on it going forwards
0: brilliant well thank you adam um that just about brings us up to the end of our time today um so thank you for for listening and taking part both of you Um, if any of the listeners would like to ask us questions then please do get in touch you can get our details on the website as usual Um, thanks again for joining us for this episode of Cartmails in Conversation we hope you enjoyed it and uh, we hope you'll join us again soon bye bye